Amen. What a, what a joy it is just to behold him today. I'm excited to be singing that new song together and as we think about just the necessity to just be still and behold Jesus. Je- My wife Jeannie and I were talking about that song yesterday and I like the thought of in all of our striving and all of the work and all of everything that we're trying to do to be faithful in so many areas of our lives, the best thing we can do is just to be still and to behold the glory of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today from God's Word. If you have a Bible with me, open to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. We've had to, if you were here last week, switch things around a little bit because of Pastor Lance. His family had COVID and he tested positive for COVID this past week. And so they're all doing well, just finishing out their quarantine now. So Lord willing, he'll be back with us next Sunday. Uh, But today I'm excited to preach one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if you have a copy of God's word, let's read it together. And this is what the Lord says by the inspiration of the Spirit to us today. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word today, God. Lord, we need to be still and behold Jesus. And so this passage does that for us. God, there's so many ways that we are striving and spinning our wheels and frustrated at times, Lord, and struggling at times, God. And so help us just to look to Christ today and behold his glory. The glory of the only son of God who left heaven and became human and humbled himself to become a servant and to die on the cross so that we might be saved. God, may we see a picture of just how low Jesus got for us today. And as we see that picture in Christ, may we do that for others as well. God, make us humble today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what does a Christian look like? What's a Christian look like? Can you look at somebody and say, hey, that's a Christian? There's a lot of religions around the world, and some of them are pretty easy to spot. You might see a man wearing a turban. There's a good possibility that he's a Sikh. Or you might see a a man who's got kind of curly sideburns coming down his face. It's probably an Orthodox Jew. 
Maybe you see a woman who's got a hijab wearing a, a veil on her face. She's probably Muslim. But how can you tell if someone looks like a Christian? Is it kind of the cheesy Christian t-shirts that we like to wear? Is it because you've got a cross tattoo on your ankle and that's how we know you're a Christian? Is it a lady wearing a denim skirt with her hair in a bun? Is that how we know that this is a Christian? You know, Christians are harder to spot because we celebrated this last week because Christians are a body of multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual people. So it's harder just to look at someone and see if they're a Christian or not because we are a people who have been redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe. But just because you can't look at us and notice it should be easy to spot a Christian because there are some defining marks of what makes someone a follower of Jesus. And one of those defining marks is humility. You see, more than the t-shirts we wear, more than the Christian radio stations we listen to, more than all the Christian books on our shelves, humility is a defining mark of someone who is a true Christian. Author Jerry Bridges, he writes this. He says, humility opens the way to all other godly character traits. It's the soil in which the other fruit of the Spirit grow. You see, without humility, we'll be filled with all kinds of pride and selfishness. And really, we are swimming in a culture of pride and selfishness. I mean, just turn on the TV, open up social media. There's pride and selfishness everywhere. But it's in here too, right? I mean, it's our nature to want our way. It's our nature to insist on my rights. It's our nature to want what's best for me. But that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not self-exaltation. Instead, it's the way of a cross. It's the way of getting low. It's the path of humility. And so we've come to God's word here in Philippians 2. And God is calling us today to that same path of humility. You see, God has blessed us in Christ. He's made us one together in him, and he's calling us now today to walk in humility. And he's calling us to find joy in walking in the humility of Christ. So it's my prayer for us today that we would find much joy in the humility of Christ, the kind of humility that makes it obvious that we belong to him. So let's notice first in our passage that humility is rooted in our blessings. Humility is rooted in our blessings. We come to chapter 2, and so Paul is turning the corner to start addressing some of the issues that this church is facing. One of the major issues they're dealing with is spiritual pride, and it's leading them to division. You see, this is a good church. They've got good pastors and deacons. They're financially supporting Paul's ministry. They're, they're a good church. But there was some spiritual pride causing division among them. And so Paul is calling them to walk in unity and in love. And in order to do that, they need humility. But notice how Paul starts here in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice that Paul doesn't say, what's wrong with you all? Why can't you all get along? He, he doesn't say, why can't you all just be some humble people? What is wrong with you all? No, instead of pointing out their sin, Paul begins with their blessings, the blessings they have in Christ. Look at verse 1 again. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, Paul is not wondering if these things are true. He knows that they certainly are. What he's saying is, if you have these blessings of Christ, and you do, then you should pursue humility and unity together. Paul begins with the list of blessings we have in Christ, and he does that because the blessings that, these blessings are the soil in which humility grows. Paul lists four of them here in verse 1. Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from the love of Jesus. Participation in the spirit of Christ. And the very affection and sympathy of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, all of these blessings are yours. You have the encouragement of Christ that will last forever and ever. You have the comfort of his love that will never leave you. You have the sweet fellowship with Jesus by his spirit. You have the very affection and sympathy of our high priest. Jesus has blessed us, and it's through these blessings that our humility will grow. You see, what Jesus does for us always comes before what we do for him. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Before we even begin to think about how we can live a humble life among the body, we have to remember what Christ has done for us first. We'll never grow in humility if it's all about me or you and you and you and you. It's not going to work. But when we begin to look to Jesus and what he's done for us, that's where true humility will begin. And and here's why. Let me ask you this question. What did you do to receive the blessings in verse 1? What did you do? Here's the only thing that you did, the only thing that I did. We were sinners. That's the only thing that we did to deserve these blessings. You see, the only thing that we brought to the table was our sin that required Jesus' sacrifice to save us from our sin. This was not a group project with Jesus. From beginning to end, it's his work. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death we deserve. He rose from the grave like we never could. So if you are blessed in Christ today, it's not because of you, it's because of Jesus. And that's where true humility starts. You see, when we're spiritually prideful, it's like me when I was a 10-year-old Boy Scout. I was bragging that I had won the Pinewood Derby. If you know what that is, the little cars that you race down a hill. I was bragging because I got first place. But dad is really the one who deserves all the credit. I mean, all I did to win first place in the Pinewood Derby was be a boy. That's all I was. Dad is the one who paid for me to be a Boy Scout. Dad's the one who bought my little blue uniform. Dad's the one who bought the little kit to make a car. Dad's the one that made the car. It was his work. It wasn't mine. You see, when we are spiritually proud, we're taking credit for everything that Jesus did. You know, maybe maybe you're here today and you've never experienced these blessings in Christ. Friend, you need to understand that Jesus is the one who does the work. Being saved has nothing to do with what you can do for him, how you can clean up your life, how you can start getting back into church, whatever that you might think that it is. Jesus lived and died and rose again to save sinners. And that's what we are. So if you would believe in him today, if you would repent of your sin and and accept salvation in Christ, you can be saved. And Christ will bless you with these same blessings. I mean, if you've never believed in Jesus, would you do that today? 
Would you receive the gift of salvation in Christ today? And friends, if you have received that, then let verse 1 humble us. Because it's got nothing to do with what we've done for Christ. It's everything to do with what he's done for us. He has blessed us richly. He is the only reason we have encouragement today. He's the only reason that his unfailing love comforts us. He's the one who sent the Spirit to be our helper. It's his affection and it's his sympathy that covers us all our days. And so if we're going to be humble in the body of Christ, it's going to begin with the blessings that Jesus paid for with his blood. So brothers and sisters, let's dig down deep into the blessings of Christ and let's plant ourselves there. You see, our humility is always rooted in the blessings we have in Christ. Second thing we see in our passage is that humility grows in our unity. Humility grows in our unity. So now that Paul has reminded us in verse 1 of the blessings we have in Christ, he calls us to pursue humility through unity. Listen to verse 2 again. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul wants this church's obedience to bring him joy, and he's calling them to unity. He wants them to have the same mind and the same love and the same agreement together, the same purpose as a church. And, And you could summarize these four things as one mind and one heart, one soul and one goal. I mean, what a beautiful picture of unity that would be for us if we had one mind and one heart and one soul and one goal as a church. But we know that churches are difficult to to have unity in and it's a struggle at times. And that's one of the reasons Paul is even writing this letter. If you have a Bible, look over at chapter four of Philippians. Look at verses two, two and three. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's an issue happening here between these two women and Paul is begging for them to come to be one again. He's asked another person in the church to to help them do it. and, And you see, he says, agree in the Lord. That's the same word that we saw back in chapter two, verse two, where he says, have one mind. It's the same word. Now, we don't know exactly what happened between these two women, but we know that these kind of things happen in the church, don't they? I mean, maybe Iodia cut off Syntyche in the parking lot one Sunday morning. Maybe Syntyche was sitting in Iodia's seat when she walked in that morning. Maybe they showed up to Easter wearing the same dress. I don't know. I mean, seriously, though, this, is, this really is a serious issue for these women to be at odds. I mean, it's, it's so serious that Paul had to call them out in the letter. How would you like your name to be in the New Testament for a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ? It's a serious matter. And so he's saying, you guys need to pursue unity. They've labored together in spreading the gospel, but something happened that broke their relationship. And so Paul is calling them to be one. Notice he says both of their names are written in the book of life. This is a reference to the Lamb's book of life that we read about in Revelation. 
And you see, he brings this up because it contains all the names of the redeemed people of God. And Paul is assuming that Euodia and Syntyche's names are in that book. And so his point is, someday you're going to get over whatever you're struggling with now. So why not go ahead and deal with it now? Why not pursue unity and be humble? And that's the point here. If humility is rooted in the blessings of Christ, then it grows through our unity as a church. It grows through our unity as a church. Do you see the connection? Again, if everything is about me and you and you and you and you, there's not going to be a whole lot of unity. But if our unity is our greatest goal, then that's how we're going to grow in humility. If everything I do is for the good of this church and for our unity, then it's going to grow humility in me. I mean, churches can be prone to pride and selfishness. We can complain when we don't get our way. We can kind of have a my way or the highway attitude a lot of times. I mean, I read a a story about a church business meeting that got so crazy that two deacons went out in the parking lot to literally beat the snot out of each other. It's a true story. Friends, that is not the way of Jesus. That's the way of self-exaltation, but it's not the way of the cross. When we fix our eyes on the cross together, we can pursue unity as the people for whom Jesus died. So Christ fellowship, are we allowing humility to grow through our unity? Do we have that one mind, one heart, one soul, and and one goal? What what would that even look like in our church? It would look like this. It It would look like working hard to be at peace with everyone. It would look like talking to one another rather than talking about one another. It would look like being for each other, not against each other. Being quick to forgive one another and slow to anger. It would mean moving toward people and not away from people. Maybe you're here today and you're like Euodia and Syntyche. Maybe your relationship with someone in this church is broken. Why not pursue peace today? Why not be one in the Lord today? I mean, Jesus died to make us one with with that person. And in heaven, one day you will be perfectly one with them. So whatever offense or whatever hurt there has been, Jesus can handle it. He can heal what's broken. And in the end, he will. So if that's you today, the great love of Christ is calling you to move towards that person. Come with grace. Come with love. Come with Christ. And just as Jesus came to you in your sin, seek unity and seek humility. You see, unity in the body of Christ is a gift that we must cherish, and it takes humility to cherish it well. So brothers and sisters, let's grow in our humility by pressing into our unity together in Christ. Here's the third thing I want us to see in our passage. So not only is humility rooted in our blessings and it grows through our unities, but number three, humility bears fruit in our relationships. True humility is always going to bear fruit in our relationships. You see, humility is an attitude. It's a disposition of the heart. And if it's in our heart, it's going to bear fruit. Like a healthy tree bears healthy fruit, a humble heart 
will bear good relationships. And here's how Paul moves on in verses three and four to give us practical ways to bear the fruit of humility in our relationships. Two of them are things not to do. Two of them are things to do. First, in verse three, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit. Those two things go together, don't they? I mean, self, selfish ambition is all about a passion to serve yourself. And conceit is all about a passion to love yourself. And really, this is a desire to exalt the kingdom of self. I want to be king. And I want everybody to know it. This can come in not so obvious ways at some times. You might think, well, I'm not trying to be famous or I'm not trying to be powerful, but we are all tempted to build our own kingdom. As author Russell Moore writes, the issue isn't the size of the kingdom, it's what you'll do to get it. And when we're building the kingdom of the self, we will often treat people terribly. But when we walk in the way of the cross and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, that's when humility bears fruit in our lives. Which leads to a second way that it bears fruit. In verse 3, Paul says, but in, or he says, uh, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So how do we deal with the temptation towards building the kingdom of self? Well, Paul tells us, consider others more important. Have the mindset that other people are more important than you. I mean, is it wrong to have strong opinions? No. Is it wrong to have things that you really like and really don't like? No. But we have to consider other people more important than ourselves. So just ask yourself this question in your marriage or in your family, in your relationships, in your community group, in this church. Ask these these kind of questions. Do I get frustrated when I don't get my way? Do I get upset when someone doesn't share my viewpoint? Is it hard for me to let someone else get their way? Do I take different opinions personally? You see, Paul is calling us to have a deep humility of heart here. He's not just saying, hey, be nice to people. He wants us to consider other people more important than ourselves. Which then leads to the third way that we bear fruit. Look at verse 4. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest. Paul is assuming that we naturally look to our own interests. We care for ourselves and our needs. It's not a bad thing. But Paul says, look not only to your own interests. He's calling us to seek the good of others in the church, to to care for the needs of others. I mean, just look at your relationships in this church. Are they all about you or are they all about other people? Now, of course, all good relationships, as we saw a few weeks ago, strive side by side together in the gospel. But God's word is calling us to resist the temptation to seek only our good. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about you and the people that Jesus loves. And so humility will lead us to love them by looking to their needs. Which leads to the fourth way that Paul calls us to bear the fruit of humility. He says, but look also to the interests of others. When humility is bearing fruit in our relationships, we will actually care for one another. 
This is why our church covenant says we will seek our brothers and sisters' spiritual growth as dearly as our own. If you're a member of this church, that's what you've signed up for. You've signed up not to only look to your own needs, but to look to the needs of others as well. In humility, we are called to look past ourselves and to seek the good of others. Now, you might be thinking, hey, that sounds great on a piece of paper there. But what does that actually look like in the life of a church? Well, here's how I have seen these verses at work in our church. It looks like a group of friends befriending an older sister and watching Downton Abbey with her on Tuesday nights so that she doesn't get lonely. That's what verse two and that's what verse three and four looks like. It looks like a family welcoming a single mother into their lives to support her and encourage her and celebrate her. It looks like a couple pouring out their lives so that the refugees in our city and in our church are cared for. It looks like a brother in our church mentoring a brother in Hope House's program living and encouraging him in his fight towards sobriety. It looks like a couple taking an elderly member of our church to Meyer on Saturday mornings to buy groceries. It looks like a couple in our church opening their home for the youth of this community so that they might know the gospel. That's what this looks like. When the blessings of Christ take root and we grow in our unity together, we will bear fruit of humility in our relationships. So brothers and sisters, God is calling us to humility today. And it's not just a fancy church word. He's calling us to stop building our own kingdoms and to stop looking to our own needs and to really love others and to really care for others. Friends, Jesus died and has risen from the grave so that we might be that kind of church. So let's be that kind of church more and more. Let's be a tree full of fruit of love and kindness towards one another, full of the fruit of humility. So brothers and sisters, let's allow the love and kindness of Jesus to bear the fruit of humility in our relationships. And then lastly, the fourth thing that we see in our passage is that humility blooms in our Savior. So if you've not noticed, I've been using a tree metaphor here, right? So humility digs down in the roots of the blessings of Christ. It grows up in our unity. It bears fruit in our relationships. And lastly, it's going to bloom in our Savior. There's a little peach tree in my backyard, and it was full of more peaches this year than I've ever seen the whole time that we've lived there. It was so full of peaches that it literally broke most of the branches in the tree. And so my question for us is, how can we be that kind of a church? How can we let the humility of Christ be so full and overflowing and almost weighing us down because we're looking after Christ and walking in his humility? How can we bloom into that kind of a beautiful tree? Well, Paul tells us here, starting in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How can our little humility tree bloom into something beautiful? It's by having the very mind of Christ. And notice that Paul says this mind is ours. He says it's yours. We already have it. 
How can humility bloom and, and blossom and flourish in our church? By pressing into the mind of Christ that he gave us. But what does that mean? What is the mind of Christ? Well, Paul moves now to verse 6 to give us one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus in the whole Bible. One commentator said, this is Paul at his finest hour. This may very well may be the most beautiful passage that Paul ever read. And it's beautiful because Jesus is beautiful. Look at verse 6. He says, who, that's talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul begins with the loftiest of thoughts about Jesus. Jesus was in the very form of God. It doesn't mean he just looked kind of like God and had the shape of God. It means he was God and is God, the very essence of God. As the ancient Nicene Creed says, he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. As John says in his opening words to his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was Jesus is God, the Son of God, one with the Father. But really, that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is that Jesus, being in the highest place of honor, chose to humble himself. You see, Jesus did not count his equality with God as a reason to serve himself. This verse does not mean that Jesus couldn't quite figure out how to be equal of God, with God. No, this verse is saying he was equal with God, but he chose not to exploit his equality. He chose not to serve himself with his equality with God. Jesus was unwilling to use his position selfishly. You might think, well, I'm a deacon or I'm a pastor. I'm a community group leader. I've been a member at this church for years. I'm a charter member of this church. Friends, there is no higher seat than Jesus' seat. How do you get any higher than being God? But he refused to serve himself. He refused to insist on his rights. He refused to take advantage of his exalted position. And instead, he chose the path of humility. Paul goes on in verse 7. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, that word there is literally he emptied himself. But that doesn't mean he gave up being God. Jesus is forever fully God. But what he gave up was his rights and privileges of being God. And he did that by adding humanity to himself. He took the form of a servant. He took the human form. You see, Jesus gave up his rights when he chose to become human. And he did that not to become an exalted human, but the lowest of humans. He could have showed up and said, hey, I'm a king, so treat me like a king. But he showed up and he became a servant. Literally, that word is a slave. How do you get any lower than a slave? But... It didn't stop there for Jesus. He made himself even lower than a slave. Look at verse 8. He said, being 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So he went low all the way into death, even death on a cross. You see, the humility of Jesus led him to to serve and not to be served. And he served us by dying on the cross. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. You'd be stripped naked. You'd be tortured. You'd be nailed to a tree. You would be placed right on the side of the road as people walked by watching you suffocate and die. People would hide their faces. It would have been unthinkable for you to have talked about crucifixion in a social setting. It was an extremely humiliating way to suffer and to die. Yeah, that's what Jesus chose. He chose the way of the cross and he chose it to save us. The the king of heaven became a crucified criminal to take our place and to save us. That's the mind of Christ. That's what it means to die to the kingdom of self. That's what it means to consider others more important. That's what it means to look to others' interests. I mean, do you see the beauty of this passage? Our king did this for us. And he did it so we might do it for one another. I mean, what must Jesus think when he sees selfishness in us? What must he feel when he sees us looking down on other people? I mean, what is he thinking when we refuse to serve other people and only serve ourselves. He humbled himself all the way to a cross to save us. And he's calling us to do that for one another. But of course, Paul can't leave Jesus dead in the grave. And he can't leave us there. And so in verse nine, he says this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. God raised him from the dead. He has raised him up to the heavens and he has given him the name that is above every name. And it's that this name, the name of Jesus that every single knee will bow in all of creation before him. And it's the name of Jesus that one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because you see, in the end, there is only one name that is worthy of honor and glory. In the end, there is only one name that all the nations of the earth will praise. In the end, it's only the name of Jesus that will be a refuge for the redeemed people of God. And so if we want humility to bloom in our church, if we want to be overflowing with humility, it will be by beholding both the glory and the humility of Jesus. If we want to be that kind of tree that's abundantly full of fruit, it's by looking into the face of our Savior. It's by keeping nearer and nearer to his cross. It will be by having the very mind of Christ which is a mind of love and of grace 
of self-sacrifice, a mind of humility. So brothers and sisters, let's behold him. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus as we root our humility into his blessings. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus as our humility grows through our unity. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus as we bear fruit of humility in our relationships. And let's keep our eyes on Jesus as we bloom into something beautiful. Today, Jesus is calling us to the way of the cross. It's a way of humility, but it is a way of joy. So let's complete our joy by beholding our Savior and becoming humble like him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word today, God. Lord, it can be so difficult to just be still and behold Jesus. God, but we thank you for this amazing passage. And we thank you that it's true. That Jesus really did these things and that he really did them for us. That his encouragement is never ending. His comfort from his love never fails. His participation in the spirit is always with us. And his affection and sympathy will cover us all of our days. We thank you for those blessings that we have. We thank you that Christ has saved us so we could be one together. God, I pray for those here today who don't know Jesus. I pray that today they would come and repent of their sins and be forgiven and to have eternal life in Christ and to become part of this body, the church, Lord. God, may you bear fruit in our relationships, God. May we look to one another's interests and not be selfish and conceited, Lord, but to serve and to consider others more important. And God, would you help us to just do this by beholding Jesus more and more? God, our temptation is to try harder. Our temptation is to look deep inside of ourselves just to be better. God, but when we behold Jesus, Lord, we can become like him. When we behold his love, we can love. When we behold his grace, we can give grace. When we behold his mercy, we can show mercy. When we behold his kindness, we can be kind, God. And today, when we behold his humility, we can be humble. So, Jesus, would you make us a humble people? God, would you help us in our marriages and in our families and our friendships and our relationships in this church and our workplaces? Make us humble so that it's easy to see that we follow Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word today, God. May it bless us. May it change us. May it help us to behold him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.